point of these questions is for you to um, see if I've answered them throughout the class, and then at the end of it, by the end of it, if I haven't answered it, make sure you raise those. And so along the way, you can also write additional questions, okay? All right. All right, let's pray, and uh, let's get into it. Father God, we thank you for this morning and for this time. Uh, we ask for your wisdom and also your heart uh, to uh, come and teach us and form us and shape us so that uh, we would give a reason for the hope that we have with gentleness and respect and be uh, your witness to the world. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. All right, so um, evil and suffering. Right? This is something that um, people encounter on a global level, uh, on a local level, and on a personal level. Okay. Um, so this poses a problem for a lot of people uh, when it comes to considering the Christian faith, or, or faith in any sort of a all-loving, benevolent God. Okay, Because they can come at it you know, globally, like looking at political events, worldwide events, or just locally, like anecdotally, uh, hearing about a friend's tragedy or something like that, or just personally, from one's personal experience of something really evil or tragic. And, and when it's personal, uh, it's really difficult to answer just with plain logic or just rationally uh, because that's not what they need, right? Uh, what they need is often an emotional or pastoral answer okay? because they're really struggling with that. And you have to approach that carefully, uh, sensitively, rather than with just cold logic, right? Uh, for many people, they're not just simply wrestling with a lack of evidence for God's existence. You know how some people say, I need more evidence to believe that God exists? Some pe for some people, they would take the presence of evil and suffering as evidence for God's non-existence. It's like, I don't even need to look for additional evidence because... I already have evidence that he doesn't exist. And that is that there's so much evil and suffering in the world. And for uh, some other people, maybe less so, they struggle with this problem in the reverse order, where um, they have once believed in God, but because of just the overwhelming presence of evil and suffering in the world, they cease to believe in God. They find such a God just not trustworthy anymore. So they walk away from the faith. So those are kind of the general problems that um, people have with the problem of evil and, and suffering. Okay? So here's what I'm going to do. I'm going to lay out um, two ways to address this problem. Okay? One is how not to address the problem, and two is how to properly address the problem. How not to address it and how to properly address it. Okay? So, number one, how not to, pro uh, how not to address the problem of evil and suffering. Uh, simply put, is this, arguing that evil exists and therefore God doesn't exist doesn't solve the problem, okay? So to say that because there's evil, therefore there's no God, that doesn't work, okay? Um, and people have argued this for many, 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 many years. So here's the most classical form of this argument from evil um, from a philosopher named Epicurus, from 300 BC, okay, 300 BC. So it goes like this. Is God willing to prevent evil but not able? Then he is not omnipotent. 
is, he, is God willing to prevent evil but not able? Then he is not omnipotent, meaning all-powerful. Is he able but not willing? Then he is malevolent. He's evil. Is he both able and willing? Then whence cometh evil? Is he neither able nor willing? Then why call him God? Right, get that? So if, he, if he's willing to prevent evil but he's not able, then he's not all-powerful, then he's not God. Or if he's able, but he's not willing, then he's just evil. Then he's, he can't be an all-loving God. Either way, it doesn't explain the existence of evil. Right? And then there's a more modern version of this argument from a philosopher named J.L. Mackey. Very famous argument. He simply put it like this. God is all-powerful. God is all-good. And there is evil in the world. Not all three of these can be true. Okay? God is all-powerful. God is all-good. And there is evil in the world. One of these three statements must be false. Okay? Now, does this work? Does this solve the problem of evil? Or does it uh, effectively argue against the existence of God? Uh, it doesn't. Here's why. The reasoning here is not logical. Right? It's entirely emotional. And that's, again, naturally so. Right? Like I said, it's, it's hard to omit emotions from this problem. Uh, but sometimes you have to realize emotions can compete with our reasoning. And this is one of those instances. Uh, this is naturally so, but it's not logically so. Okay? It's emotionally understandable, but not logically rational. Okay, here's why. Two reasons. One, just because we cannot see or imagine a good reason why an all-good and all-powerful God might allow something to happen doesn't mean we can therefore conclude there cannot be possibly any good reason for Him to permit that to happen. Does that make sense? So just because we can't see a good reason for evil and suffering being permit permitted doesn't mean there isn't a good reason why it will be permitted. So what's lurking underneath this argument, this notion, is actually a very powerful faith position that because I don't see a good reason, there isn't a good reason. Because I don't see a good reason, there isn't a good reason. Okay, it's claiming omniscience, like this all-knowing power to know everything in this universe. Okay? Um, so Tim Keller in, in Reason for God, again, a book I, I, I recommend and, and a book that we're following along closely in this series, he says, if our minds can't plumb the depths of the universe for good answers to suffering, well then, there can't be any. This is blind faith of a high order. Okay. Uh, Alvin Plantinga, he's, another, uh, he's a philosopher. He taught at Notre Dame. He's, he's a brilliant guy. Uh, won the Templeton Prize a couple years back. And he's written a lot on the problem of evil. And one of the simplest illustrations he gave, which I found very helpful, is his illustration of the noceums. Have you guys heard of a noceum? Noceum. Okay. So noceums are you know, tiny, biting insects um, that are so small that they're called noceums. You can't see them. Okay. And so planning us says, if you walk into a tent, okay, and you look for a Saint Bernard dog, right, and you don't see a Saint Bernard. It's reasonable to assume that there is no St. Bernard in the tent. But if you look into your tent for a noceum, and if you don't see any noceum, it's not reasonable to assume that therefore there are no noceums. Because after all, you can't see them. Right? So 
Why then should we assume that the likelihood of our finite minds seeing immediately a reason for an infinite, all-knowing God allowing something to happen to be more likely than that our chances of seeing no seems? Okay. So maybe the explanation for evil and suffering in the world is as visible to our minds as no seems are visible to our eyes. We can't see them. Okay. It's not because it's not there, because we're limited in what we can see, okay? And so this is something we actually experience in, in a daily context as well. Um, I had to take you know, both my kids, you know, starting at a very early age, to, to the doctors for their annual shots. And each session is like four or five injections uh, with very intimidating looking um, needles that just go through their cute, you know, chunky little thighs, okay? And I know it's going to be painful, right? Um, and I know they're going to cry and maybe even resist, okay? But what do I do, right? I lay them on the table, right? Uh, I allow it. I permit it to happen, right? I would even hold their arms and legs down if they resist, right? Um, why? Because the shots will protect them from serious diseases like hepatitis B, polio, right? And, and, and it helps them develop their immunity before they get into contact with any of these diseases. But do they, do, do my kids have any idea why I'm allowing that in that moment? As they experience that pain, as they cry out, as they resist, do they, do they have any clue why I'm allowing that to happen to my beloved children? No, right? They have no clue, not a single clue. And they'll just cry, they'll wail, they'll resist, right? But here's the thing. This is something they will thank me for decades later, right? They'll thank me for it decades later. So that's the distance of knowledge even between two human minds, right? Between an adult mind and an infant mind. So how much more will be the gap between the finite human mind and an infinite divine mind, right? It'll be infinitely greater. And, and perhaps uh, we will not be able to thank God until our minds become like his mind, right? Become divine, become eternal. Okay. Um, so if God is truly good, it is plausible, it's likely, it's believable that he will permit things that we may not consider permissible now, that we may even cry about and resist now, so that he can achieve a better good that we cannot even imagine in this point in time. Okay? So that's the first reason why it's not logical simply to argue that God doesn't exist because evil exists, okay? Now, before I move on to the second one, any uh, questions on that? Lamar, you had a question? Yeah, yeah McGraw said the, the evil part. Um, I do I always, um, when there's like a lot of uh, rhetoric towards God, it's always about uh, justice versus injustice, a.k.a. evil, right? And so it's like, it's like this all this, um, they always go back to the beginning, whereas, why would he even allow it to fully manifest in the first place? You know, that, that whole rhetoric. Because, like, even if we deal with this issue here, you know, about evil in the world, they'll go way back and say, well, why didn't he kill evil off then? Why did he allow it then? Yeah. And then even before, well, the one yeah. really smart, yeah. well, why did he allow Satan to live? You know, it's like mm -hmm. it keeps going back mm -hmm. and back mm -hmm. and back. Mm -hmm. And, like, it gets to a point where it's, like, trying to even debate that. Mm. 
Yeah, I think that that's pretty much the same um, argument as this, where you know, to to say that you know, I don't I don't see a reason why he would even allow evil in the first place, and therefore there's no good reason that he would allow it in the first place would be a bad argument. So so that would still apply. Uh, and if you were asking from a Christian point of view, um, the answer would be different. But we're just, for now, talking about why it wouldn't be rational to argue that God, therefore, doesn't exist. Right, right, yeah. right. So, so there's, there's, one, there's one reason that we gave for why that wouldn't be reasonable. And then and then here's another one, okay? Another reason why it's not logical to argue that God could not exist because of the existence of evil and suffering in the world is this. The existence of evil in the world actually demands the existence of God. Okay. In other words, in order to perceive evil in the first place and stand by the position that evil is a real thing, you have to assume the existence of a really good God. Uh, here's how C.S. Lewis put it. I think this is from Mere Christianity. My argument against God was that the universe seemed so cruel and unjust but how had I got this, uh, this idea of just and unjust? A man does not call a line crooked unless he has some idea of a straight line. What was I comparing this universe with when I called it unjust? If the whole show was bad and senseless from A to Z, so to speak, why did I, who was supposed to be part of the show, find myself in such violent reaction against it? If I did then that... If I did that, then my argument against God collapsed too, for the argument depended on saying that the world was really unjust, not simply that it did not happen to please my private fancies. Thus, in the very act of trying to prove that God did not exist, in other words, that the world, the whole of reality was senseless, I found I was forced to assume that one part of reality, namely my idea of justice, was full of sense. Consequently, Atheism turns out to be too simple. If the whole universe has no meaning, we should never have found out that it has no meaning. Just as if there were no light in the universe and therefore no creatures with eyes, we should never know it was dark. Okay, see what he's saying? Um, to, say, to say that the world is really evil, you're assuming that there is really such a thing as a good, something that is perfectly good. Okay. And where do we get this idea of something that is truly, perfectly good? Okay. Um, death, suffering, or what we call evil or, or injustice are simply a part of our natural world apart from God. Um, and, and they should really, therefore, appear natural to us. Right? But why don't we just leave it at that? Why, would we, why do we complain about that? Why do we resist that? Why do we rage against that? as if there was something more than just mere nature, some outcome that ought to be the case, as if our world is not the way it's supposed to be. Because if God does not exist, good and evil are just made-up human concepts. They're just human inventions. They aren't real things. We don't really have to strive for them as if they carried moral significance. They're just personal opinions that change over time, depending on your culture, depending on the time period that you live in. So... Lewis says, if you're saying this, is, this line is really crooked, it's not just crooked in your own opinion, it's really crooked, then you're assuming there's a really straight line. Okay. If you're saying there's something that's really evil, and it's not just your personal opinion, it's really evil, then you're assuming 
there's such a thing as a real good. Not just good according to your opinion, but timelessly and perfectly universally good. And that's what we call God. Whereas if you don't have an absolute being, being the absolute standard for good, then evil is just what, whatever your personal appetite happens to dislike in your culture and in your time period. So that means other people in different culture and different time period are entitled to their good and evil, right? Maybe, maybe they think racism and slavery are a good thing and diversity and equality are evil, right? Why, why are they not entitled to that opinion it, according to their culture and their time period. How, how, how dare we condemn them for their beliefs, for their opinions? Maybe another culture at a different time believed cannibalism is a good thing. Eating animals is evil. Okay? Who are we to judge their culture as evil and our culture as good? In the absence of God, all opinions are equal. Right? No line is really crooked. It's just a personal opinion. So, the problem of evil is not a real problem if there is no God. Right? Uh, you can't argue how can a good God allow such evil because in the absence of God, that's just your personal opinion. Okay? And everyone's entitled to their opinion. Okay? So the answer to this almost is you shouldn't be so culturally entitled to your culture to condemn another culture just simply because your culture sees it a certain way. You're imposing your cultural view of good and evil on others. But of course, we don't believe this. We think, we think there is such a thing. There's re there really is such a thing as good and evil. And, and no matter what culture, what time period, some of these horrendous things were practiced, we still condemn them as evil. We don't simply say, well, that's okay for them. Right? Uh, we, we frown upon it, we condemn it, we judge it regularly. And so Dostoevsky put it this way, if God does not exist, then all things are permissible. If God does not exist, then all things are permissible. Okay. And the, and the problem is, we say things are not permissible all the time. All kinds of things are not permissible. And that assumes that there's a real moral absolute. Right? We identify real evil in the world all the time. We're bothered by injustice all the time. We, can, we look at things past and present, readily pronounced judgment. We look at the Nazis, right? We look at uh, Soviet Russia. We look at North Korea, uh, even the religious atrocities, and we condemn them as evil, right? Uh, just the, the, even the modern political rhetoric, you hear language of absolute judgment uh, pronouncing the other side as evil all the time. But this is only possible, right, only meaningful if there is an all-good, morally perfect God um, that enables us to actually make these meaningful claims and hold these opinions, not just as personal opinions, but as objective claims to reality. Okay? It's only in light of God that we can claim that some things are truly, timelessly evil, regardless of culture and time period. Things like murdering an innocent person. Rape, abuse, theft. Okay. Only in a world where God exists can we believe that these are really evil and not simply evil according to my cultural opinions. Okay. So to close off this point, planning, I put it this way. 
A secular way of looking at the world has no place for genuine moral obligation of any sort. And thus, no way to say there is such a thing as genuine and appalling wickedness. Accordingly, if you think there really is such a thing as horrifying wickedness, and not just an illusion of some sort, then you have a powerful argument for the reality of God. Okay. Now, I'll add to that even there are, that there are modern atheist thinkers who come out and actually admit that moral absolutes are an illusion, but they are a helpful illusion, and therefore you should be behave as though they're real. Moral absolutes are not real. They admit that. They, they admit that it's a human convention. It's an invention that we made up to control kind of society, to propagate our species. And, but it's not really good or evil. It's just what's conducive to survival. But that illusion of what's really good, what's just and unjust, is a helpful illusion. Sam Harris is someone who really champions that today. Uh, another, another very important line of thought coming out of secular science is um, the absence of free will that free will actually does not exist because in the absence of God, right, there's no metaphysical reality. We're just chemically, chemically wired to do what our brains determined us to do. And that means when someone commits an evil or breaks the law, it's not like they chose to. It's, it's, they're just wired that way. Just, that's just atoms bouncing around. They're just, the brain is just genetically wired that way, and that's why they make the decisions they make. And so that really compromises this whole idea of moral duties and obligations. If you can't choose good or evil, how are you responsible for good and evil? So, so th that undermines that system as well. But again, the argument is it's a helpful illusion. In the absence of God, it's still a helpful illusion. So we've got to, with blind faith, pretend as if these are real things and not just uh, opinions. Joseph, what were we going to say? Um. But wouldn't that, like, when you said, like, with the whole murder thing, yeah. um, wouldn't that beg the question as to whether um, there isn't even, like, uh, necessarily obligation to punish, you know, if they even do, do commit murder? Yeah. So. Right, yeah. I mean, that's a good point. So, again, like, to just to kind of keep the society functioning uh, according to just what our norms are, they would, they would say, we're calling it heinous, or evil or whatnot, but but those are sort of fictional terms we've given to things that are just more conducive to survival. And that happens in the jungle all the time, right? When a lion kills a zebra, do we say the lion murders a zebra? We don't, right? So so the, our, the discussion is as zebras, how do we prevent lions from eating us? Well, let's call it murder, so it would just be more serious. Whereas we're Apart from God's existence, this is just part of the animal kingdom, right? Where things kill each other. And what, what reasonable basis do we have for forbidding that when it happens all around us? Why condemn that, right? So that brings in the image of God, that we're created with dignity, we're, we're, we're equal in the eyes of God, we, we're in, we have intrinsic values. And you bring in all these spiritual terms. And, and what a lot of atheists would say is, Let's assume those things. Let's pretend those things are there, like human equality, dignity, uh, when they really have no basis for believing that in an in a animal kingdom. Yeah. So is it, um, is it safe to say that the believer should sense, I don't know if it's wise or whatever, but the believer should take his 
personal definitions of good and evil and bring it back to the Lord mm -hmm. for mm -hmm. his definitions of good and evil. Yeah. Okay. Yeah, definitely. Um, there's, there's that kind of conformity to just going beyond simply acknowledging God exists to am I aligning with his commands, commandments, uh, and more so than my behavior, my heart. Yeah, that's a good point. Um, bef now, so those are the two uh, uh, bad approaches to trying to resolve the problem of evil just by saying, okay, therefore God doesn't exist. Were there any questions that you have written down um, that haven't been answered so far? I'm going to prioritize those before I go on. Any questions that you have written down that we can maybe clarify on? Oh, yeah, go ahead. Mm, well, I guess, so yeah, my question is, well, uh, why be Christian if you're still going to face evil and temptation and sin? I don't know if that... Mm. Mm -hmm. Sure, yeah. So the question was, why, why even strive to live as a Christian when you're already going to face, you're still going to face evil and suffering in the world? That was what I was going to get to just now. Um, so hang on to that. Um, anything else? Yeah. Um, as a Christian, shouldn't our hardships be, it's kind of similar, but yeah. shouldn't our, our hardships be less than non-Christians? Yeah, very good question. Sh shouldn't our hardships be less than the non-Christian? Uh, short answer is no, but uh, the longer answer is yes. <laughs> so th that's coming, but I, I just want to, any sort of, Questions coming from the non-Christian perspective that we can address more. Yeah. Some people say like God is like the source of evil because mm. He allowed it. Yeah. So I guess just like how. Yeah. If somebody says God is a source of evil because He permitted it, how do we address that? Um, that's a good question. Kind of, kind of goes back to what Lamar was saying. You know, why did He permit even Satan to come into existence or? The, the angel, the, the possibility of the angel being a fallen creature, right? Uh, let me give you a very short, this is, um, this is a book length thing, <laughs> but um, I think one answer that I've come to peace with is something like this. When, whenever God creates anything outside of himself, he's creating something imperfect, fallible. Because right? by definition, only God is perfect and infallible. So whenever he creates something that's other than himself, there is at least a potential for fallibility, for fallenness. And, and to make another long story short, uh, Satan, are simply, Satan is simply a creature that actualizes the potential for fallenness with his pride and rebellion meaning that potential was already a part of his nature. It's not something that God triggered. That, that potential for fallibility was already in him by nature, and he chose to actualize it. So, yeah. so it's, God's not a, in a sense, he's not a direct cause. Right. He's an indirect cause in that he created him. But that, and, and yeah. It suggests that evil already kind of exists. Then. The potential for evil was right. there, yeah but not evil itself. Okay. The and the potential for non-evil was there. The potential to simply choose to forever glorify God was there too. 
Same thing for Adam and Eve. The potential for living righteously for, for, the, for all eternity was there. They didn't exercise that, right? Rather than choosing to eat from the tree of life, they choose to eat from the forbidden tree. So um, with any potential for that kind of um, choosing, I think your heart has that, again, the creaturely heart has a potential for fallenness. And at the same time, yeah, God is an indirect cause of that. Uh, in one sense. And, I mean, you can also say he's a direct cause in this sense, in, in the sense that he authored this whole thing. So, um, for example, it's the relationship between J.K. Rowling and Voldemort, right? Um, she authored every part of Voldemort, right? But we don't look at Voldemort and his heart and his evil choices and condemn J.K. Rowling for that. Somehow we, we make a moral separation between the author and the character because the author has the authority to write whatever character he or she wants. So we give that kind of prerogative to a human author. Why not the divine author? There's that position as well. So. But hence, that's why he planned for redemption because he knew apart from... Right, him. so the story, yeah, the story of redemption... Um, can only be possible, like Harry Potter can only be glorified because there's a Voldemort, right? Otherwise, there's no story. And so the author has some clear intentions in that. And, and that goes to, yeah, whether you give God that kind of authority or not, right? So I think people who have real problem with this, they essentially have a problem with God having that much authority, when what we want is autonomy. It's almost like Voldemort shaking his fist at J.K. Rowling, like, why did you write me this way? And in Romans 9, Paul says, a, pot, a, a, potter, a piece of pottery can't say to the potter, why did you form me this way or that way? All right. So those are really good questions. Let's move on a little bit to how the Bible would address this, okay? So in 1 Peter 1, 1 Peter 1, it says this in verse 6 and 7. In this you rejoice, though now for a little while, if necessary, you have been grieved by various trials, so that the tested genuineness of your faith, more precious than gold, that perishes though it is tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Okay, so first of all, notice how in this passage Peter anticipates suffering. So this kind of goes to what, what Hannah was saying. In the Bible, there's a certain realism about suffering that it is a part of this fallen world. It doesn't say if you believe in God, you will avoid suffering. Okay? No, it tells us in this world we will suffer. And this is important. Okay? It's amazing how surprising, how shocked Christians even get uh, when they suffer. And that's due to uh, their worldview that doesn't really see the world in its truly fallen state. Sin and evil should not be shocking to us. Right? They can shake us. They can sadden us. They shouldn't shock us. This, this world is a fallen world, riddled with sin. Um, so Keller put it this way, no matter what precautions we take, no matter how well we have put together a good life, no matter how hard we have worked to be healthy, wealthy, comfortable with friends and family and successful with our career, something will inevitably ruin it. That's why we want to get out of this world. That, or that's why we want God to bring in another world. Because it's an insecure world. 
This is our current state of being. And we need this kind of realism that the Bible gives us. Okay? That's the first step towards addressing the problem of evil. Okay? And, and it's seeing suffering not as an interruption to your perfectly planned and perfectly in control life, but suffering as a way of waking you out of that illusion that you've had control, that it's all going according to your plan. Okay? Now, second, it says the trials, the testing by fire and the suffering, they result in something. They result in praise and glory and honor. And Peter says, in this you rejoice. Okay? And that's a powerful claim, that even the trials we have is something to rejoice in, something to, there's something to look forward to here. Okay? And, and it says if necessary, that is, it's what God deems necessary for our faith to come out more genuine and precious than gold. Okay? Why? What does that get us? And it says in 1 Peter 1.9, obtaining the outcome of your faith, the salvation of your souls. Okay? So there's an end to your suffering, and that end is salvation, salvation of your souls. What is, what is salvation meant to do for us? It's meant to restore us, restore everything we've lost or we will lose, our bodies, our loved ones, our homes. It's all going to be restored. That's salvation. Okay. And until then, even, even along the way there, until we obtain this glory, we will be made better and better where it matters most, in the soul. It's a salvation in the soul. That means in our character, in who we are. So suffering in the Christian worldview, again, is not just an interruption to your day-to-day -day life. It's not just delayed gratification. It's a meaningful part of God's plan for your soul. Okay? Suffering is a meaningful part of God's plan for your soul. Okay? Now, how can we know... This is true, okay? Uh, it's through the cross, okay? where God himself inserts himself into the story of this world, the story of suffering, and suffers for us and with us. And he suffers really infinitely more than any human being has ever suffered. Yet, he was resurrected later on, and he had it all restored to him. The first man, right? The firstborn of humanity to have it all restored to him. His glory was restored. His body was restored. His honor was restored. His fame was restored. His riches was restored. His home, his family, everything was restored. Right? So what does that tell us about God in our suffering? It means he wants to be with us in our suffering. He wants to suffer for us and be glorified for us so that we will suffer like him and we will be glorified as he is glorified. 2 Corinthians 1.5, I'll close with this. For as we share abundantly in Christ's suffering, so through Christ we share abundantly in comfort too. Okay? This is the Christian answer to suffering. It's the cross where God suffered with us and for us, and if suffering and, and even death couldn't rob Christ of his inheritance and his glory, and only increased it all the more because of his suffering, then the same will be true of us if we're united with him. Suffering is therefore a part of God's story for us. It's under his control. It's under his control. It's part of his authorship. Okay? And again, along the way, expect suffering to mature you and grow you. Okay? 
Uh, we rejoice in our suffering knowing that suffering produces endurance, endurance produces character, character produces hope, and hope does not put us to shame. So, yeah, the Bible's encouragement for us is not that you won't suffer in this life or that you suffer less because you're a Christian or that suffering is only caused by your sins. It doesn't say that. But it does teach us that suffering can develop in us things like faith, hope, love, patience, humility, and self-control. Things that pleasure cannot produce. Okay, things that pleasures won't produce. Suffering can be used by God to better us this way and to better hope for the coming world. And I hope that this will also encourage you then to come alongside to those of you who know that there are people around you who are suffering, maybe a friend or family member or coworker. Suffer with them in their suffering. Weep with those who weep and, and thereby you, you exemplify Christ who suffered with you and for you. Be like Christ. Come alongside those who are suffering and suffer with them. And that's the best answer sometimes somebody needs in their time of suffering and their problem of evil. Right. Any burning questions before we close in prayer? So is there yeah. like an easy, instead of like the one hour session, is there like an easy way to answer somebody who asks like, okay, so like, you know, my parent died, mm. I don't understand why God would allow this. Mm. Like, how do you expect me to believe in a God who... Yeah, so let's say, you know, uh, yeah, a close family member died, and I don't understand why God would allow this. I mean, that sounds to me like this person believes in God, yeah. right? So then I think I would take the more pastoral approach. This person needs comfort, right? This person needs... It's like something that happened like 10 years ago, so that's why. Mm, okay, it's still lingering. Yeah. So it's causing doubt, perhaps, yeah. yeah. Uh, I would, yeah, I would just be careful to try to detect whether they are trying to make a rational point if they are, then I would go to the first two points I made. Mm-hmm. It's actually not a rational point. Mm-hmm. If they're trying to make a rational point. Mm-hmm. But if you hear just more of a, an emotional pain mm-hmm. and angst, I would just, just be a friend and be there and listen and, and just be honest and say, you know, I don't know either. I don't know either. And just be there. And if they ask you for more, I think that's when you can bring in what you just heard about the cross. You know, I think what I do know, I don't know why God would allow anything evil in our lives. And maybe you can share something that happened in your personal life too to to make it personal for you as well. But we don't know why God would allow this and that. But what we can't say is He doesn't care because He entered our suffering. And He entered the the most ultimate suffering, separation from God himself and that tells me that even though I don't have a clear answer to why I won't see why until I see him face to face I don't think but until then I know it's not that he doesn't care Uh, but I think he wants to show me how to suffer like him so try to gauge what their needs are and yeah and this is why you guys are the best ones to, to approach the people nearest to you because uh, sometimes what they need is a rational approach, sometimes what they need is a more emotional pastoral approach. Yeah. All right, good question. Let me close in prayer. 
God, we thank you for this time, and we're just scratching the surface here of a very important topic. And I pray, God, you would give us wisdom to pursue this continually and just be a Christ-like representation in the world to a suffering world um, so that we can go with your gentleness, your meekness, uh, and your love as well. Help us and shepherd us, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen. All right, let's get ready for service.